we're so used to seeing things that, in my opinion, aren't quite right in our treatment of animals. Yeah, the less we eat, the less violence is being done and the less destruction to the environment. Everyone eats and everyone has to make a moral decision every time that we sit down to the table. And welcome to the Animal Voices radio show, Western Canada's only radio program dedicated to animal advocacy and compassionate living. This is 100.5 FM co-op radio CFRO on unceded M ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Turtle Island. Today is Friday, April 30th, and I will be your host, Grace Wampold. For this week's show, we will be focused on chickens. It is International Respect for Chickens Day coming up on May 4th. And this entire month is International Respect for Chickens Month. This month was begun as a campaign by the United Poultry Concerns, headed by Karen Davis. And we are so lucky this week to have her on our show to talk about chickens, to talk about the United Poultry Concerns and some of the work they've done historically and currently, as well as a current campaign happening to add pronouns to media releases, which has been backed by the NPR producer Scott Simon. So go to the United Poultry Concerns website, which we will link in our show notes, to hear more about that campaign and other pressing campaigns that we will cover in today's show. So stay tuned, we have a really incredible show for you today. Have you heard about Megaphone Magazine? It's an award-winning publication sold on the streets of Vancouver and Victoria by low-income and homeless vendors. When you buy Megaphone, You get entertaining and informative stories written by professional journalists, and you're also helping to empower people in poverty. Here's how it works. Vendors buy each magazine for 75 cents and sell them for $2, keeping the profits. With the money they earn, our vendors are able to buy healthy food, clothing, and other necessities. Plus, they forge valuable connections with their customers. People unable to access traditional employment can earn an income with flexibility and dignity and feel proud of their contributions to their communities. Don't miss out on this month's edition of Megaphone, chock full of voices and perspectives you won't find anywhere else. You can find a vendor on the streets of Vancouver or Victoria, or buy online at megaphonemagazine.com. And now for this week's news. In honor of Respect for Chickens Day, I will be focusing this week's news story on the top headline of United Poultry Concerns website, Tractor Supply Company Mistreating Baby Chicks and Ducklings. Birds suffer worse this year than ever before, and it's time to eliminate Chicks Day, says the United Poultry Concerns. Each spring, customers buy thousands of baby chicks and ducklings from the tractor supply stores in response to the company's Chicks Day promotion that lures shoppers to purchase the costly equipment needed to maintain the birds. Employees cannot care properly for the birds in their store. Unsold birds are destroyed by the tractor supply company after being offered on clearance. This year, we've heard more from tractor supply shoppers than ever before, says Karen Davis, the president of United Poultry Concerns. 
distressed by the inhumane towers that are in these stores of brooders. Birds are seen in clear glass containers stacked on top of one another. Tractor Supply em employees have exposed this company's cruelty to chicks and ducklings. An employee at a store in Washington state contacted the United Poultry Concerns about Tractor Supply's inhumane policies and practices towards these birds. Essentially, the chicks are found cowering together in a transparent plastic tray, standing on cold metal grates. The Tractor em Supply employee stated on April 13th, chick stays are annual and are expected to last another couple of months. We still have many birds, and I was told by a coworker that 32 ducklings just died in a shipment last week. Only three had survived. Another concerned employee stated that they have been an employee for almost a year and were hired because they love animals and are knowledgeable about them, but was happy working there until recently when chick days began. This employee arrived to find all of the birds cold, huddled, and piles. The ducklings were completely out of water, and they asked their manager on duty why there was not any water. Essentially, the way the displays were designed had made it impossible to provide sufficient water to the ducklings. Whenever refilled, the ducklings were climbing all over each other, desperately trying to get to the water. And the smallest and weakest one would end up either without water or fully trampled by other birds. There is no veterinary resources for any of the sick animals that are currently under the care of the tractor supply company. When asked how many birds died per shipment in the previous year's sales, they replied, sometimes it was all of them and I would cry every day. Another employee said, every single time I have to bring a bird to the back who's dead or about to die, it breaks my heart. I hate that. I had to explain to a little girl the other day who was crying that we were taking the chick to the back to get better in our little hospital and that most of them get better. But the reality is that these chicks don't get better. The only reason these chicks are there is so that the tractor supply can sell other equipment alongside these birds. These birds are a promotion every year to help tractor supply make money. When these birds are newborns, they're shipped across the country from the East Coast to the Midwest. Shipping live birds is not only extremely traumatic, but it is detrimental to their health, especially paired with the lack of care that they receive upon arrival. Please spread this news far and wide and consider boycotting the tractor supply company if you are a farmer, a small-scale grower, or in the area of one of these supply stores. You can hear more about this at the UPC's website, upc-online.org, and you can sign and share their change.org petition. The owner of Tractor Supply is a man named Hal Lawton, and the contact information for him, his email, will also be available on the UPC's website, which we will link in today's show notes. Now, before our feature interview, I decided it would be best if we did play Scott Simon's audio from Animals Deserve Gender Pronouns 2, spoken on the weekend edition from Saturday a few weeks back, written by Scott Simon and recorded by Scott Simon. So, of course, this is courtesy of NPR, um, but this will give us some great context to some of the conversations that Karen and I have in today's episode. 
If a cat or dog shares your domicile, I'll venture a guess that you don't refer to the four-footed family member who licks your face, naps in your lap, sleeps on your bed, and inhales the redolence of your dirty socks as if they were saturated with rose petals as it. You probably call them by a name and refer to them as he or she and various nicknames inspired by their personality and habits and, for that matter, yours. A group of more than 80 people with an interest in animal welfare, including Dr. Jane Goodall, have signed a letter calling on the editors of the Associated Press Style Book to change their guidance so that animals and news stories would be identified as she, her, hers, and he, him, his when their sex is known, regardless of species, and the gender-neutral they or he, she, or his, hers when their sex is unknown. News organizations, including this one, often follow the guidance of the AP style book. The signatories of this letter hope that when we write about animals in zoos, shelters, fields, farms, forests, seas, slaughterhouses, and labs, they are recognized as living beings who feel hunger, fear, happiness, and pain. It would mean writing sentences like, the rat was injected with virus, or the deer was struck by the car, and... He, she, or they died, not it. The proposed change might seem difficult to imagine right now, but consider how the care we take with personal pronouns for humans has changed over the past several years. Ben Dreyer, copy chief at Random House and author of the best-selling Dreyer's English, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style, says, These changes remind us that thoughtful adjustments to our language don't have to wait for a style book. Writers should write the way they see fit, he told us, and the changes they wish to affect either will or won't be embraced broadly. The so-called genderless he, for instance, is now overwhelmingly a thing of the past because writers have abandoned it. Laura Hillenbrand, author of Seabiscuit and other best-selling books, told us that if we don't refer to animals in personal terms, we open ourselves to abusing, neglecting, and exploiting creatures whose capacity for suffering is no less than our own. People and animals share an immense capacity to feel, she says. We form beautiful, profound relationships with them, and we justly place animals on a moral plane alongside ourselves and far above that of the cinder block or the hubcap, the things we call it. Referring to animals in personal terms may help us recognize how much of life we share. The United Poultry Concerns is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the compassionate and respectful treatment of chickens, turkeys, ducks, and other domestic fowl. We hold that treatment of these birds in the area of food production, science, education, entertainment, and humane companionship situations as a significant effect upon human, animal, and environmental welfare. So essentially, we need to be critical of people who think it is appropriate to keep birds for educational, scientific, or entertainment reasons. We seek to make the public aware of the ways in which poultry are used and to promote the benefits of a vegan diet and lifestyle. So if you want to learn more, go to www.upc-online.org to learn more about the United Poultry Concerns. They're based out of Virginia on the Eastern Shore, and if you're ever in that area, you're welcome to reach out to join and support their work. And now for our feature interview with Karen Davis, the founder of the United Poultry Concerns. 
it's really exciting to just have a day to talk about chickens mistreated in this industry and this world. But so could you speak a little on what inspired you to start UPC? Well, Back in the late 1980s, I was really learning all about the plight of farmed animals. And I became increasingly interested in the plight of chickens and turkeys, first because I have a lifelong affinity and love for birds, all birds. And then secondly, because I was learning that of all farmed animals, all land farmed animals, chickens comprise about 98 or 99% of all land animals raised and slaughtered as a food source. So the fact that I already loved birds and I had already met a couple of chickens doing some volunteer work at Farm Sanctuary and also our landlady, it turned out, had been keeping chickens for slaughter. (laughs) I didn't realize that when my husband and I rented this little house and discovered these chickens, but all of those things conspired to cause me to want to devote myself to helping chickens and turkeys. I had never met an actual live turkey, although I lived in a part of Pennsylvania where turkey hunting was uh, conducted pretty routinely. But in any case, um, in 1990, I finally just started, I finally founded United Poultry Concerns as a national nonprofit organization. I had been urged at the time by some leaders in our animal movement to start this organization on behalf of chickens, turkeys, and other domesticated fowl. But there were others who cautioned me against starting such an organization, saying that in effect, we can't even get people to care sufficiently about whales. How are we ever going to get anybody to care about chickens? And my response was, well, as animal advocates, our task is to get people to care about chickens as well as other animals and that we need to develop the skills to do that. So one way or the other, I would have started United Poultry Concerns regardless of any advice for or against that I may have received. But in 1990, I was officially a nonprofit organization promoting the compassionate and respectful treatment of domesticated fowl and have been doing that now for 31 years. And we have a, a nice, size membership, both online and in our regular print mailing list. And we've done many, many campaigns. I've written several books. I moved our organization from outside Washington, DC in 1998 to this rural part of Virginia where we uh, can have our chicken sanctuary. That was the motive for moving our whole operation well, I I should say our headquarters, down to this rural area on the lower eastern shore of Virginia. And I might point out to listeners that Virginia, Delaware, and Maryland are the, represent the birthplace of the broiler chicken, so-called broiler chicken industry, and uh, remain 
one of the largest chicken producing regions in the United States, where at any given time, over a half a billion chickens are locked up in metal chicken houses. And there are more than 5,000 of these houses all over this little strip of land, which is called the Delmarva Peninsula, comprising all of Delaware and the Eastern shores of Virginia, where we are, and Maryland. So um, I'm pretty close to the scene of the tragedy. And um, many of our birds over the years have been birds who fell off trucks down here on their way to the Tyson chicken slaughter plant or the Purdue chicken slaughter plant or one of the other slaughter plants that dominate this region. And the chicken industry is the main industry in this region. Yeah. That's incredible and extremely upsetting. I think Virginia in many ways um, and a lot of those Southern states are the epicenter of the mistreatment of non-humans historically and currently. When you, and I wonder too, you know, what are the misconceptions you think in your community about chickens? I've met here people here on the Eastern shore who have actually asked me, who work for Purdue or Tyson, for example, what the chickens do when they're rescued because uh, many of these workers uh, don't have any real experience with chickens other than in the chicken houses where these birds are forced to grow to a huge size within six weeks or sometimes even in a shorter amount of time in order basically to just become breast, breast muscle tissue because that's what people mainly eat. And then there's now this huge economy based on eating chickens' wings, although in fact, the wings are really uh, not wings at all because wings have bones in them. And obviously these so-called wings are more like just chicken nuggets, the scapula of the chicken that along with God knows what else are put all together in this concoction that uh, is sold as chicken wings. So I've, as I say, I've met people who work for the industry who really are curious about what these chickens do when they're not in a chicken shed. What do we do with them? And I explained that, well, you know, these chickens, even though things have been done to their bodies to incapacitate them, they like to do the things that all chickens do, such as they love to sunbathe. They love to dust bathe, which is getting themselves all covered with uh, earthy par particles that enable them to clean their skin and their feathers. Uh, they like to walk and run, and uh, they prefer to perch on hay bales and uh, on branches. And of course, these chickens who have been bred for the meat industry tend to be so heavy and often lame, they can't do all the things they would like to do, but they'll try until they learn that uh, they have to minimize the behaviors that they would prefer to perform. So they will still try to get up on something low, like a hay bale or a low branch or a low rung on a chicken ladder in our chicken house. And what I see and explain to people all the time is that no matter what has been done to the bodies of chickens to deform those bodies and to debilitate them, the fact is that chickens basically 
are no different in their genes and their desires than the wild jungle fowl in the tropical forests from whom they derive. People often think that, well, chickens are stupid or they're dirty and whatnot, failing to remember that if chickens are dirty, it's because they are confined in a situation they did not choose. If people lived in a small confinement area where they could never find any space, where they had no toilets, where they had no opportunity to take a shower, it would only take about a day or so for us to be in even worse condition than these poor chickens, as far as hygiene is concerned. Chickens are not inherently dirty. They love to clean themselves. When they're rescued and we set them on the ground for the first time in their lives, first thing they wanna do is to scratch and peck in the dirt and create an earth bowl, if you will, and take a vigorous dust bath to clean their skin and their feathers. So chickens have an inherent desire to be clean. Uh, chickens are now known and recognized to be very intelligent birds, to be very emotionally complex, be very sensitive. And the old fashioned idea that chickens are somehow unintelligent or less intelligent than other animals has been completely disproven by scientific studies and I can vouch for their intelligence just by virtue of having been in their company since 1985 and watching how intelligently they behave in our sanctuary. They are not stupid. And I tell people that really no animals could be stupid and thrive in natural environments. And animals such as chickens, even if they're not in a natural environment, will pick out those things in the environment that replicate as closely as possible what they know from their ancestral experience in the tropical forests. Uh, they recognize water in bowls and in ponds, in streams. They never fall into a swimming pool. We have a swimming pool for our ducks. And I've never yet seen a chicken perch on the edge of the swimming pool and fall into it, even though in their natural habitat, chickens would not normally encounter a body of water. They would encounter raindrops. They quickly learn the difference between raindrops and standing pool of water, and they never jump into a pool of water. Uh, they recognize if they don't have branches to sleep on at night or to jump up on during the day, they certainly recognize uh, various types of perches that we make for them, like on their chicken ladders. Now in our sanctuary, uh, we have uh, large wooded areas. We have 12,000 square feet of sanctuary space, which, which is totally predator-proof which includes things that enable the chickens to have an experience that's as close to a, a forest as we can provide for them because chickens evolved in a forest. They love trees, leaves, uh, they love rich soil, and they spend a considerable part of their day digging or scratching, foraging in the soil for all kinds of nutrients invisible to the human eye, but that they recognize as nutrients that they need. And they look for those very, very tiny objects that 
um, are like little tiny stones that they ingest to enable them to digest their food properly, which really operate as teeth operate in us or in mammals and other land animals. Hi, Grace here. I just wanted to interject uh, because Karen's talking specifically about a crop, which is the part of a chicken right after they first ingest their food. It's a bunch of rocks. And you can think of this as a chicken's little lunchbox because they're chewing there. They get to enjoy their food for a long period of time before they then digest it in their stomach or for chickens, their gizzard. And I just wanted to share that fact because I think it's cool that as much as possible. So I try to explain all of these things to people. I might be in the supermarket and purchase a big box of green leaf lettuce. And sometimes uh, people will say to me, boy, you must really like lettuce. And I say, well, I do, but uh, uh, this lettuce is for our chickens. And people say, what? Uh, chickens like lettuce? Yeah, they love lettuce. In fact, they need greens in order to be completely healthy. Now, one thing I will say in the past 10 years, more people are keeping chickens as backyard chickens. You know, they Unfortunately, they often buy them from, from huge hatcheries. Basically, these factory farm hatcheries will hatch any type of chicken for, uh, chickens for any purpose, whether it's 4-H or cockfighting or school hatching projects or backyard chicken keeping. Uh, all they want to do is make money from these birds. And so people will buy them and say, well, so we have local eggs, but the eggs really come from chickens who usually were flown by air mail. The point is that I do meet people who, wherever they got their chickens from, their hens, they often really do love them or they come to love them once they get to know them. Fortunately, here on the Eastern Shore, people can keep roosters as well as hens because, as I mentioned, we are in a rural area. I talk to many people who very sadly will order hens only to discover that there may be two or three roosters, which they're not permitted by law to keep in their yards. So there are all kinds of pros and cons about the backyard chicken keeping trend. The one positive thing is that it does help people to reestablish a connection with actual living chickens, whereas uh, from the 1950s up until about 20 years ago, people had pretty much gotten to the place where they had no uh, interaction anymore with actual live chickens. So that part of it is good. Uh, one of the disturbing things I find here on the eastern shore of Virginia, this rural area, is that people distinguish between the chickens they keep and have affection for in their yards and the chickens they see going up and down the roads uh, by the thousands in the trucks on their way to the Tyson chicken slaughter plant or the Purdue chicken slaughter plant, distinguished between the ones who are quote unquote for food and the ones they keep in their yards. There's still this attitude that if the chickens have been bred for meat or for eating, uh, they're, they're sort of in a different category. You know, I've done research on what they call heritage chickens. And I think it's funny how people will see the beauty in chickens and specifically chickens, you see people that have bred designer birds. 
and treat them differently because they look a certain way. And maybe those birds have the chance of living 20 years, whereas just a Rhode Island red or some sort of crossed chicken uh, is considered you know, run of the mill and only really viable to lay eggs for one year. And that's the extent of their life. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. People divide, uh, well, animals into categories, obviously. There are pets, there are farm animals, there are companion animals, you know, there are zoo animals, there are laboratory animals. These uh, categories, which refer to how humans are using these animals, rather than who they inherently, these animals inherently are. So uh, there certainly is a kind of willful confusion, uh, the idea that, well, you know, if we use this chicken for us or this animal, um, it's okay to abuse them because this is the category that they belong to. Uh, but we see that kind of behavior in human societies as well. And we certainly see people being valued based on uh, characteristics that have nothing to do with who they are or their intrinsic feelings or value or anything else, but on external prejudicial categories. This is something in the way humans seem to tend to think. These categories are arbitrary and utilitarian and actually prevent us from seeing the victims in their own right for who they are. You also just touched on something that kind of goes into something I wanted to talk about today. Recently got in an argument with someone where I called a uh, cow a woman. The person was really startled and confused and it got us going down um, a bit of a research train and realizing that the word cow specifically denotes a female mother that um, is milking, whereas there is no individual word for ungendered individual. We just have the word cattle, which is a, that speaks to the community. It's just very apparent in all of our language that no individual is recognized at all. Yeah, I just wanted to speak a little bit on that, how language plays into a lot of this. Well, there's no question that we use language and create language to replicate and reinforce, in the case of animals, for example, what we want to do with them, how we want to use them, or how we want to view them. You are listening to Animal Voices on Vancouver's Co-op Radio, 100.5 FM CFRO, 100% listener-sponsored radio broadcasting live from the east side on unceded Coast Salish territories. Eoch Taniyap, Kwiget Yuan's Kwiensna. Hi, everybody. My name is Kwiget Iwans. I'm a member of the Squamish Nation and the Yogalanis Clan of the Haida Nation. You're listening to Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. We live, work, play, and broadcast from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. I know you're aware of this wonderful recent letter that was developed by the Organization in Defense of Animals, directed to the Associated Press, which has a set of recommendations to characterize animals when speaking about them in media coverage. The issue in this letter to the Associated Press that, uh, to which 
United Poultry Concerns is a signatory along with about 80 other individuals, scholars, groups, and so on, urging the Associated Press to update and upgrade their recommendations for pronoun usage in speaking about other animals, pointing out that referring to non-human animals as it, I-T, or its, things, uh, inanimate things, rather than using pronouns that make it clear that they are fellow creatures of ours. They're not a table or a chair. They are our animal kin. And that when we refer to a dog or a rooster, for example, as an it, um, instead of uh, him, or in the case of a hen, her or she, we are reinforcing in our own minds and in that of whoever we're writing and speaking to, that these animals are not like us, that they don't have characteristics that link them to human beings and human life. So it's really important that the Associated Press show leadership now in updating its, langu its language recommendations in keeping with what science increasingly is making clear, which is that other animals are highly intelligent, cognitively complex, emotionally complex beings. And we were very pleased to see that National Public Radio published um, a, a blog on NPR, National Public Radio, in which he agreed with us that uh, it is time to update our pronoun usage. They are not things, that they are hims and hers or he's and she's. And um, we were very pleased by his agreeing with us and publicizing it on NPR. We have had several alerts urging people to join us in protesting NPR for shows they've done in which they have denigrated chickens, promoted eating chickens, such things as promoting rodeos and uh, suggesting to listeners that that animals are inferior and uh, not worthy of serious consideration. Now, NPR still has a long way to go. <laughs> There's no question about that. But uh, we, we focus on them because NPR represents itself, it's public, public radio, and uh, that they represent an ethical concern for truth and, and whatnot. You know, nice sounding terminology, but let's turn it into actual demonstration. So when I have published or submitted a letter to the editor through the years to different newspapers, different news media, and have received a response such as, well, we're interested in publishing your letter and we edited it to read in this manner. I hope you're okay with it. Let us know if we can publish it this way. Occasionally through the years, sure enough, they have taken a him or her and turned it into an it, reference to a chicken or a turkey or a duck. And I have never stood for that. I have always said, well, you know, the edit looks okay to me. However, 
if you're going to publish my letter, you have to reflect what I actually said, which was this chicken, I referred to this chicken as she, and I uh, really can't have a letter published uh, under my name, which would suggest that, or say outright that this bird is an it. In a, in a nice, polite way, I make it clear that we promote the compassionate and respectful treatment of chickens, turkeys, and other birds, and by extension, all animals. We certainly thereby uh, cannot refer to them as objects and things. Often, again, it's just the, the, the person I'm dealing with usually hasn't even thought about it. Again, they went to the Associated Press or their, and that's just kind of the convention. Be aware that often people are just doing what they're doing because of convention. They haven't really thought it out at all. Yeah, uh, in the open letter it says, for language to achieve accurate communication of the world around us that allows us to educate ourselves, make informed decisions and navigate a way forward, it must continuously evolve. And I really think that speaks to what you just said, where people aren't being forced out of the path they're used to going in. You know, you need to have some sort of force exerted on you to change your perception. And NPR, as you said, has a long way forward, but even those little subtle things, when you hear the language of she, her, they, normalized, they can see where we as compassionate beings are coming from when we say, well, obviously a chicken is an individual. And we're seeing that in other ways too, like even for me, for example, I've more recently tried to take away even gender terms with animals because I realized that a lot of other animals don't see it the same way as us, or they don't really maybe acknowledge what that is. He and she in their in their world might not exist the same way it exists in our in our society as humans. And it requires trying to think about what communication means. And for example, if I was on a walk and I saw a beautiful warbler on the tree nearby, I would say they are beautiful. Uh, I wouldn't assume the gender of that bird. I have no way of knowing. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing that we should do as humans when we meet new people, not trying to assume those sorts of things about them. Well, we want to make sure that we don't get too complicated for people. All right. I mean, we're trying to get people to at least reach the place where they uh, refer to a, a hen as she and a rooster as he, or a male dog as he and a female dog as she. I um, mean, again, we have to realize that we're trying to get people thinking. So, you know, I noticed, for example, that in advertisements for pet food, the advertisers, the company does now specifically refer to your dog or your cat as uh, she or he. I hear that very frequently, which wasn't something you heard maybe 10 or so years ago. They want you to think of your dog or cat as a him or her, a he or she, because then you're going to have a more loving and caring attitude, and then you're going to be more willing to buy their particular pet food, which of course is a whole other. But there's no question that uh, we are uh, spearheading an effort to get people to see and care about and to want to help and not abuse our animal kin and that we want them to care for other animals, whether they be chickens or elephants or whoever, in a way that is reflected in the language that they use because everybody points this out uh, on all kinds of social justice uh, matters involving humans and non-humans that words matter, language matters. 
So we have to be on top of that. Now, I do want to say that um, I have written extensively about the use of language in animal advocates, advocates language, because I often have heard over the years, uh, uh, animal advocates really using uh, language that is not appropriate. For, again, part of it is just unthinking. Part of it is to sound more quote unquote scientific. If I use the term broiler chicken, I pretty much, if I use that in writing, I put broiler in quotation marks. Um, I normally say chickens. Uh, again, we're, we're trying to navigate, you know, this linguistic uh, terrain that has been made so complicated and so utilitarian based. But I try to stay away from the word uh, broiler chicken. And I've certainly uh, spoken out very loud and clear when I've heard people in our movement refer to these uh, chickens bred for the meat industry, not only as broiler chickens, but as broilers. I mean, that's atrocious. If we're going to use it, we have to put it in quotation marks or in air, air quotation marks if we're speaking as an adjective, but never as a noun. We never want to refer to a hen used for egg production as a layer. And I've heard people talk that way. So we want to think about that. And uh, we don't want to use language that uh, only furthers uh, the view of these these birds, and speaking about the birds right now, as uh, just uh, things. But another term that I've taken issue with in several articles and uh, lectures that I've given has to do with the use of the word uh, euthanasia uh, in referring to mass murder and torture of uh, chickens and turkeys and pigs and other farmed animals in uh, situations where there is a huge outbreak of avian influenza. And so all of these animals were growing larger and larger in the, uh, the houses in which they're raised. And all animals who are bred for the meat industry are slaughtered at very young ages. So once they start growing too, too big uh, for the slaughter equipment, and they pile up, then the question is, well, what are we going to do with them? Because we have too many animals who we don't have any uh, way to successfully slaughter and market. So this past year, and of course this happens all the time, but it, 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 it was done on a huge scale um, in 2020 and into 2021, particularly in 2020, where you had thousands of pigs and chickens and turkeys uh, being uh, basically baked to death in uh, the uh, confinement facilities where the heat was turned way up. Of course, they're all crowded together. They were slowly, very slowly suffocated to death. They would turn off the ventilators, turn the thermostat way up, or they are being slowly, very slowly suffocated to death in uh, carbon dioxide. So these are methods that, the, that, these, uh, that these industries use all the time because they're always having huge outbreaks amongst these animals. You just don't hear it covered in the news, but um, it certainly became covered widely this year. Well, not widely enough, but at least to some extent. And yet it not only on some of the cable news networks, but even among animal advocates publishing articles about this, they would refer to this mass torture and murder of these animals as euthanasia. 
And I, I was very upset by that as we all should be because euthanasia means a humane, merciful death. It does not mean any old type of killing. And you see this repeatedly amongst at every level where whether it's dealing with wildlife, where whether it's dealing with these animals that have been confined for human consumption, that euthanasia, it's used because it sounds softer because that is, but it is absolutely inappropriate for a news source to think that is the way that you can kind of dispatch information about killing any individual because they were a disturbance to humans. It's, it's just incorrect. Anytime you see a news article doing that, I think it is important to reach out to that publication because it's just the wrong use of language. And we need to be honest and very, very clear what's happening when individuals are being killed. The term euthanize or euthanasia, or sometimes absurdly, people say humanely euthanized. Well, it's like saying humanely killed humanely, you know, it's like redundant. But, uh, you know, part of it is that the word becomes so conventionalized that many people aren't even thinking of what it means anymore, even though if it came to human beings being uh, mass killed uh, by other human beings, nobody uses the term euthanize, nobody. And there are places all over the world where people are harmed uh, in large numbers by other human beings who don't like them or want to eradicate them or whatever. And you never hear any newscaster refer to these mass killings as euthanasia. And yet they will turn right around and use the term euthanasia or euthanize when they're turn talking about animals. And of course, as you're indicating, it's really from these, uh, what you might call uh, production backgrounds, the science, uh, laboratory, uh, where these terms have originated as a way to soften the killing, the cruel killing, since virtually no animals in laboratories and certainly on farms are even remotely killed in a way that could be called humane. It's a term which uh, is uh, 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 used to sugarcoat a horrific reality and keep people from actually registering and thinking about, and by people, I mean also the people who are doing the killing, from really fully registering and taking responsibility. And you touched on something earlier too, you reminded me of, I don't know if you've read Beast of Burden by Sonara Taylor, but we see this just, when we talk about animals, we don't always think about person first language and everyone needs to be seen as a person first. So we should take these, concepts from other activist groups and make sure that we're applying that to our veganism because otherwise we're normalizing objectifying animals. We're not actually working towards the end, an end goal. We're still creating this hierarchy between humans and chickens and pigs and fish. Well, I think, I think, the, I think this whole question of personhood of animals is very, um, is very important. And uh, yeah, we certainly want to help uh, people to perceive our animal kin as persons. Uh, an aspect of this that I have addressed is uh, the unfortunate habit uh, that again has afflicted the animal advocacy movement of ranking animals 
according to who's smarter, who is less smart. Referring to uh, other animals, uh, adult animals who are mentally competent, uh, comparing them with human infants and toddlers and and almost representing the idea of, oh, a pig has been shown to be as smart as a two-year-old. I mean, that's ridiculous. And, or uh, look at these crows, how smart they are. They're almost as smart as a five-year-old child. I mean, the thing is, there is no meaningful cognitive connection between a human infant and child or child and a fully developed hen or elephant. There's no way that a group of children can form a, a, a functioning society. Okay. I mean, and animals such as chickens and elephants have formed functioning, capable societies. They know how to be parents. They know how to care for their young. They know how to find food. They know how to fend off predators. They have to make millions of decisions every day in the environments in which they live. All of these types of decisions they have to make are decisions that a human infant or a toddler could not even begin to make. And for that matter, I think it's totally wrong and um, uh, that we need to stop doing this, which is comparing cognitively intact, capable, non-human animals with mentally compromised human beings. So we need to stop doing that. Um, that's very unjust and it's completely absurd. There are so many ways to see the world as a human alone. And so, and, and beyond that, your intelligence as a human shouldn't justify whether or not you are worthy of life. And why are we thinking that's okay in other species? Do we think that there's a justification in cutting down a 200 year old tree just because they don't have a brain in the same way that we do? What is the importance of even sentience at that when we, when we go down that you know, that pathway for having that conversation, it's. Well, one thing I, I you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the uh, ultimate definitive answer on this is, but I certainly believe that uh, plants, trees, whatever, have an experience of themselves as well as of those aspects of the, their surroundings that they need in order to support themselves and nourish themselves. This does not have to be pain. I do, however, think that it is most likely that plants have some way of sensing their own existence. This does not mean that I am saying that uh, cutting down a tree is the same for a, a, the experience of a tree as cutting the neck of a chicken, uh, because we know chickens and fish and virtually all animals have nerve, uh, nerve endings. They have nociceptors, which are pain receptors, and they have all kinds of other receptors that enable them to experience uh, different temperatures and, and different kinds of uh, surfaces and what they call impact re uh, receptors. Animals have uh, sense senses and feelings and uh, can experience pain. So while I'm not at all suggesting that a, a, a plant is experiencing the, the whole sensory apparatus that humans and other animals have, uh, I do think that if we really knew the truth about 
every living organism, we would discover that there is no organism that is comparable to a table or a chair or a thumbtack, as far as that organism's own experience of uh, being alive. I love that. I think that's a really simple and elegant way to ver verbalize that. I really thank you for spending this time with me. Is there anything else as far as other campaigns you want to talk about? Uh, in conclusion, I would strongly urge listeners to go to uh, United Poultry Concerns website, because there you're going to find a ton of information about international respect for Chickens Day, about a current campaign that we have going right now, uh, urging a farm supply store stop uh, selling chickens and ducklings in the most inhumane conditions. Um, but it's really a horrible situation. So that, along with our longstanding campaign against uh, a school hatching projects, well, thank you for uh, very much for um, inviting me to be on your show and to promote international respect for Chickens Day, and, um, and uh, increasingly people will be alerting us to what they're doing for international respect for Chickens Day. So, and we actually also designate uh, May as International Respect for Chickens Month, because we want to give people a, a sense of how they can do a lot of things, well, make every day respect for Chickens Day, obviously, but uh, the, the entire month of May, uh, they can do things that are specifically related to International Respect for Chickens Day and Chickens Month. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. You have been listening to the Animal Voices radio show here on 100.5 FM Co-op Radio on unceded and ancestral Tsleil-Waututh, Musqueam, and Squamish territories here in so-called Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, Turtle Island. Please join us for next week's show on Friday, May 7th. We finally made it to May. May 7th will be our Mother's Day show, as we do every year for Mother's Day. Make sure to join Elise for that. And thank you so much for hanging with us today. We covered Respect for Chickens Day, an international holiday that is really near and dear to my heart. I talked to Karen Davis, once again the head of the United Poultry Concerns. We also talked about why animals such as chickens, cows, and other individuals deserve pronouns and pronoun recognition in things such as radio programs and news articles. Because animals are not its or that's, they are he, she, they, them. And one day, I hope we can extend this language to other beings that may or may not be sentient such as the trees and the forest. So thanks again, Karen Davis, for joining us. We also covered the pressing news related to the Tractor Supply Company. This Tractor Supply Company has been selling live birds on the floor of their storefront to the dismay of the employees and the community. So I hope you learned a little bit through that section and generally had a great hour focused on chickens. We here at the Animal Voices radio show modestly ask you to keep connected with Animal Voices via the World Wide Web. Our past shows can be listened to on our website at animalvoices.org. Our past podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, so you can subscribe to us there and never miss a show. Join our Facebook page and join us on Instagram as well, both at Animal Voices Vancouver. 
And if you want to get in touch, let us know how we're doing, or send along a show segment suggestion, you can send us a note on Facebook or send us an email to info at animalvoices.org. And yes, we're on Twitter as well, Animal Voices YVR. So we will be closing out this week's show with a song that makes me think about the beauty of the sounds that chickens make and the incredible bond between women that we see in chicken communities. So the song that I'll be sharing with you today is Toy by Netta. Uh, you might remember this song back from 2018. Netta won Eurovision with this song and included some incredible impressions of chicken sounds in the introduction uh, and throughout this song. The song starts out with Netta saying, look at me, I'm a beautiful creature after making all these incredible chicken sounds. And while the song is meant to be referencing not being someone's emotional toy i also think that we can take this concept and bring it to chickens this is international respect for chickens day and you know they're not ours to use or abuse they are beautiful creatures that deserve respect and love so let's end the show with that on our hearts and in our minds stay tuned next for radio eco shock with alex smith and thank you so much for listening to animal voices today Stay safe inside, and remember to be kind to the animals. Ouch. La. Ouch. La. Ouch. 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 La. Ouch. Ouch. La. Ouch. Ouch. La. Look at me, I'm a beautiful creature I don't care about your modern time preacher Welcome boys, too much noise I will teach ya Pum pum pow, prum pum pow Hey, I think you forgot that I play My teddy bear's running away The Barbie got something to say
Take you nowhere, where, 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 where,